0: Welcome to the Stop and to Think podcast. I'm your host, Will Dole. Thank you for listening. This is just a short intro before I share the interview I did with Dr. Jim Ambusky, who is the lead for the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. Uh, as I was editing that interview, I realized I forgot to ask, if you are enjoying this podcast, please rate and review an Apple podcast or wherever you're listening. And without further ado, uh, we will shift over and you will get to hear my interview with Dr. Jim Ambusky. Well, welcome to the Stop the Thing podcast. I'm your host global. Thank you for listening. I have with me today Dr. Jim M. Ambusky. He is the leader of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library at George Washington's Mount Vernon. He's a history of the American Revolution, Scotland, and the British Atlantic world. And he did his doctoral studies at the University of Virginia and is a graduate of Miami University. And I assume since you're from Ohio, it's the Miami of Ohio University. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. So every time I think of Ohio, so I grew up early 2000s, I'm a big Reliant K fan. And so I've got this uh, O-H-I-O, (laughs) Ohio band stuck in my head. So uh, it's good to have you with us. Um, You're a historian. So, so let me just ask, to begin, how did you get interested in history enough that you did your doctoral studies in it, devoted your life to it? Uh, a lot of people kind of laugh at history or say, oh, what, what good does
1: that do? So how did you get interested in it? Yeah, that's a great question, and thanks, Will, for having me on. I really appreciate the invitation. It's funny. I actually grew up as a kid wanting to be an aerospace engineer. Uh, my, my grandfather worked at wright Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio and uh, my dad's a mechanical engineer and I you know loved planes and aerospace growing up because we would go to the Air Force Museum which is on the base there and whatnot and I you know I really wanted to design planes and do things like that you know it turns out that actually being an aerospace engineer requires a great deal of math which I'm not good at (laughs) and so if you don't get the math right you know planes tend to fall out of the sky and so I uh, but I also had a really uh, a really great interest in history. My uh, grandparents had an interest in history. Some, some other family members did as well. And then when I got to middle school and high school, I had some really wonderful teachers, uh, Steve Shively in particular, who really inspired me to go down that path. And I still didn't really know what I wanted to do when I got to college, but I did major in history as well as political science. And as I got closer to graduation, it became increasingly clear that I wanted to have some kind of career in history, didn't know what yet, but I stuck it around at Miami for a few years working in the development office and also got my M.A. in history while I was there, and, and I decided that uh, at that point I really wanted to become a professional historian and decided to pursue my doctoral work at the University of Virginia.
0: So what drew you to the University of Virginia in particular?
1: I'm particularly interested in early American history, and there are a few great places to study that in the United States, Uh, you know, Harvard, uh, uh, UVA, uh, other places and whatnot. But what particularly drew me here was the strength of the program in revolutionary history, uh, Mm -hmm. because I really was interested in the history of the American Revolution, uh, both the political aspects, the social aspects, the transatlantic nature of the conflict, and also the war itself. And there was a very, very strong early Americanist program. We call ourselves early Americanists uh, who do this kind of work. And uh, Peter Onof was one of the leading scholars of Jefferson and the revolution there at the time. And also a cadre of people like Max Edelson, who studies the British Empire and the American Revolution uh, in the 18th century. And it was a place I wanted to be uh, and learn with my fellow graduates students learn from senior scholars and have the opportunity, particularly with UVA being in Charlottesville, Virginia, and sort of central to Virginia, or being in the central part of Virginia, I could travel easily to DC to do work in the archives and things like that. So it was very uh, a convenient and very appropriate choice for many reasons. And I was very lucky to get in because it's, it's hard to do. And so I, <laughs> you know, I, I never let myself forget that. Yeah, that's
0: that's great. So if you were going to give an elevator pitch to just Joe Schmoe, who's walking around and says, why, why does history matter? Why, why should it be studied? Obviously, some people have an interest in it. But, but what significance does history have for us today?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think one of the fundamental things I would say, or the fundamental responses I could give, is that the past is prologue. Uh, but also, as Faulkner says, the past is never really past. Uh, we are always living with the legacies of what came before. And if you think about that within the context of the American Revolution, that event structures uh, in many ways the ways of lives we have today. It uh, transforms American society in ways that people like Washington Jefferson did not intend or did not see coming. You know, For example, it unleashes eventually in the 19th century a democratic enthusiasm that creates uh, it transforms uh, an American state from more of a hierarchical one into more of a democratic one. Uh, it unleashes uh, a wave of both anti-slavery in the North as some states begin to dismantle slavery in the, during the Revolution and its aftermath, but it also entrenches slavery and racism and separation of peoples by color in the American South, which leads to a cataclysmic American Civil War, 87 years later, uh, and we you know we can certainly see the legacies of all of those things in our own time. Trying to still figure out how a free people should govern themselves in a republic, how people of different races can live in a republic together in harmony and aspire to the same ideals and do so on an equal footing, and a lot of what we see in our own time comes out of the 18th century as. People are again are trying new forms of government, are uh, learning new forms of what's called political science. You know, political science is invented in this period—the science of government, the science of of uh, self-government, certainly—and uh, trying to understand how a multicultural, multi-ethnic society can live in unity and aspire to some kind of notion of equality at the same time.
0: Yeah, it's really helpful. I'm sold. I, I'm. I suppose I probably was already, but if I weren't, I would definitely be sold now. So Excellent. great. <laughs> so on that topic of the importance of history, I, I said before we started recording, you know, I read your piece on the Georgian Papers website, uh, "Mourning Thomas Jefferson's Estranged Father," and and in that paper, you you talk about Jefferson's view of the British monarchy, and you talk mm-hmm. talk about his his deep disappointment with George the Third. Uh, I wonder if you could just kind of flesh that out uh, for those obviously probably most people listening haven't read that paper uh, and to me, that was totally fresh. Uh, thinking about how Jefferson would have viewed the monarchy. It's just not something that ever crossed my mind before. So if you could talk about that a little bit, that'd be great,
1: yeah, sure. the essay I wrote as you say, morning Thomas Jefferson's estranged father is on the website for the Georgian Papers program, and I'll just say very briefly that the Georgian Papers program is a transatlantic and multi-institutional initiative to digitize the papers of King George III and his family, uh, which are all held in Windsor Castle in England. Uh, And I was associated with that program because in 2015, I became a research fellow. And so I actually got to go to Windsor for a month to root around in King George III's papers. And uh, as a consequence of another project I was working on related to Thomas Jefferson and the law, it struck me extent to which Jefferson never really gets over what he sees as a kind of betrayal by George III to fulfill his duty as uh, king uh, of America and this idea of kind of like being the father of the empire. Um, and Jeff, you can easily dismiss Jefferson's ideas about George III as uh, uh, incompatible politics, I guess you might say. Republicanism, small r, Republicanism versus monarchy. But the more I thought about it the and the more I read about how Jefferson thought you know we should banish every court case uh from the ascension of George the Third in seventeen sixty onwards that it had, should have no influence in American law that uh, he is the I, I think he you know he calls them the kind of uh the uh the wedge that's preventing a, a, a restoration of proper relations between uh the British and the Americans that it was something much more than politics. It was much more personal. And the ways in which he talks about George III is really as a kind of slighted son would feel about a father who has betrayed him in some way. And I wanted to explore that a little bit and understand why he felt that and sort of the larger implications of that for the rest of the colonies in the revolutionary period and thinking about you know how they thought about him in the run-up towards the Revolution and how their own expression of disappointment was manifested in a variety of ways during the Revolution and after as well. Um, so the piece is very short. It looks at Jefferson's reaction to George III uh, upon his death on January the 29, 1820. Uh, But it goes back in time a little bit to look at how Jefferson, in the revolutionary period, is imploring, and then uh, is imploring George III to act in a way that he and other Americans thought he should behave, and then also, certainly in the Declaration of Independence, condemning him for his failure to do certain things and to meet the expectations of what Americans thought uh, he should do and what what would make for a good king and how he thought uh, the king's role in the empire should be.
0: That's interesting. You know, as growing up in America, learning American history, I don't, I don't know that most of us ever really think about the fact that George III was king of America. <laughs> you know, yeah, that like, exactly. That's just totally foreign to, to our conception of the world and even our own history. Was Jefferson's view and his Frustrations with George as a monarch. Would those have been commonly shared frustrations? Obviously, we <laughs> we declared independence, but <laughs> but there was also a strong loyalist uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: party in America. And so, how how common were those feelings, really?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question, especially you know thinking about it from those variety of sides, right? With both the patriots, as they call themselves, the rebels. And then the loyalists during the war and after. And to answer that question, we have to sort of think about what most, you know, white Anglo-Americans thought the king should be doing in the period before the revolution. And it really has to do in part with how they thought the empire sort of fit together. Right. So if you think back to when we we're in school, we learn about you know the Stamp Act and the Tea Tea Act and things like that, and how Americans are decrying taxation without. Re- representation and we you know we don't push the story further in grade school because it it gets a lot more complicated and then suddenly (laughs) we get to the declaration and it's like why are they condemning the king that makes no sense whatsoever really what a lot of americans have begun to think or had begun to imagine by the 1760s and certainly by the 1770s is that the colonies were in kind of a commonwealth relationship with britain Uh, So in many ways, they're anticipating the modern idea of the Commonwealth. So think about it this way. Queen Elizabeth II is Queen of Canada, uh, but the British Parliament has no authority to legislate for Canadians. And it's a similar thinking in this period, that the Americans see the king as the kind of great father of the empire, that he is king of Virginia, he is king of Massachusetts, he is king of Connecticut— Uh, that uh, he is in some ways the great imperial umpire, that he can help uh, harmonize the relationship between the British Parliament and the multiple different assemblies in the colonies. Um, But the Americans, as we see in the Stamp Act protests and the township duty protests in 1767, certainly in the Tea Act of 1773 and in the Tea Party, is that the Americans don't, by and large, don't really agree with the notion that Parliament can tax them directly, right? Uh, that's the big argument for the Stamp Act, you know, no taxation without representation, mm-hmm. that only their local assemblies can do that. Uh, they recognize Parliament's right to regulate trade between the colonies and the mother country, but they really see them their, their assemblies as kind of distinct from Parliament, And they expect the king to take their side in certain situations when they believe that the British Parliament has overstepped its authority. So another way to kind of contrast that is the way that colonialism in Spain develops, or in New Spain, in what becomes Mexico and Peru. When the Spanish come over in the 16th century, and they conquer the various indigenous peoples, and they begin to establish... Uh, administrative units the kingdom of spain actually creates uh new states out of those those conquered territories and in, they do something what's called incorporates them into the british or incorporates them into the spanish crown so they are part of spain like they're not colonies whereas and they they administer those territories directly contrast to the english later british colonies in north america uh, they are not left entirely on their own. That's kind of a myth that gets trumped up in the Declaration. But they have a l- lot more autonomy relative to those Spanish colonies. And so in that context, they really see the king as, as both the great father of the empire, but also the kind of arbiter between the British Parliament and those local assemblies. Where you see that in particular is a very interesting case in the late 1760s, early 1770s, when after Parliament does repeal the Stamp Act and there is a sense in the colonies that George III had something to do with this. Uh, and why that is has never been entirely clear to me, to be honest with you. It's always been kind of a something that just... Sticks in my mind, and I've got to figure out eventually why that is. <laughs> but anyway, the, the New York Assembly votes to erect a statue of George III in lower Manhattan on Bowling Green, and it's erected in 1770, and it's in it's an equestrian statue with George III uh, decked out as the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, the philosopher emperor who was supposed to be or supposedly a kind of wise and virtuous and, and benevolent father of the empire. hmm and it's a it's a physical manifestation of this idea of the king rallying to defend his people against an intrusive parliament. Uh, and you see this kind of material culture throughout the colonies, um, thinking about, right, that the king isn't physically present in America. He never goes. Uh, he never really leaves London. He only goes about 100 miles outside of London his entire life. Huh. But... But regardless of that, unless you, you were in London as an American, you would never have seen the king. Uh, and it, even then, it would have been hard to have seen him unless you saw him outside or you had a personal audience with him for whatever reason. Right? So the most of the way that Americans know him is through portraiture right in, in public buildings, in churches, perhaps in their homes. Uh, they know him through the statues like the one we talked about in New York they'll know him through the almanacs that they buy and they the calendars are kind of oriented towards a religious and monarchical uh, dates of significance like the king's birthday or the queen's birthday or the the Prince of Wales's birthday things like that uh, and so there is a kind of these are all done to help kind of promote a cult, cult of monarchy as one historian has called it in which Americans are participating in the life of monarchy through these kinds of things, uh, even though that they will never see the king in his physical form, it helps them to feel a sense of belonging and attachment to the king. And when things go south uh, in the 1770s, you see a real visceral reaction by some Americans, not all, but by some Americans who... Uh, take the opportunity to take out their frustrations on the very things that reminded them of the king's benevolence in the first place
0: Huh, that's that's really interesting i, wa- I wonder how does that fatherly concept of of the king you know it's often commented that if if washington wanted to he could have been become king of mm-hmm. of the united states and how, how then does that concept that, that was in place affect, even, even though we now have a, a constitutional order with separate branches of government and a, a president at the head who's elected, not, it's not hereditary. Nonetheless, how, you would think some of those ideas have to, to carry over. How, how did that mm-hmm. continue to shape the American view of our head of state?
1: it's a really great question and it kind of builds off what we've just been talking about because there are implications for not only the, the presidency, but how power should operate in a Republic. Uh, There's a couple of key things we want to think about uh, before we even get to the constitutional period is that reaction against the King and his authority in the early months of the revolution, particularly after the declaration of independence. Uh, You know, we learn in school that the majority of the time the Americans are arguing against Parliament, but yet in the Declaration, it's a full-throated indictment of George III for -hmm. the reasons that we have been talking about. He has failed in his duty. He has committed, essentially, these crimes against a free people. You could take the cynical argument and say it's easier to target the king because it's one person and who wants to target, like, 500 and some odd (laughs) members of Parliament, but there is a real seriousness to this. Uh, it's, and we should take those charges seriously, not in the terms of whether or not they were right or wrong, but the reasons why they're there in the first place. You see Americans rip down portraits of the king. My particular favorite is after the Declaration is read to Washington's troops in early July of 1776, a mob attacks that very statue we just talked about, rips it down, uh, decapitates it, so they're essentially committing fictive regicide mm-hmm. killing the king and then the body is dragged to Connecticut where it's melted down into bullets to be shot back into the bodies of the king's troops um part of that statue does still survive in in New York but uh but most of it has been destroyed and is now you know somewhere <laughs> somewhere in the in the ground hollow grounds of uh, the eastern united states in some sense um, um so there's a, there's a sense, right, that we have to uh, make sure that whatever system of government comes into being afterwards, that there is no, like, central authority that can harm us or, or one individual that can harm us. You know, if you look at the constitutional order put in place by the Americans or the, I would say, the patriots during the war, the Articles of Confederation, There is a president, but he has no power. You know, it's mostly done by committee. And that persists throughout the early 1780s until it becomes very clear to many Americans like Washington or James Madison or Alexander Hamilton that this is not working. And if we don't have a more stable system of government with greater authority, that the republic is going to rip itself apart. When they create the presidency and the Constitution, then they're very, very careful. Uh, because they recognize that this person will be head of state like a king but they're very careful not to give that person the powers of a king it helps that everyone knows that it's going to be washington who's going to get elected that's that's why in some sense they were willing to go as far as they did because they trusted him that much with that power to hmm. set the country on the the proper footing at the outset but they they, they you know they're very careful about the kinds of powers they give that president you know for example king george Third had an absolute veto so the virginia house of burgess would pass an act uh, it would have to go to london for royal assent so the king would have to approve it and if the king wanted to he could veto that legislation no questions asked, and there would be no veto override there's nothing that could be done about it that really rankled a lot of americans in the colonial period because when the the colonial legislatures would passed legislation that conflicted with British ideas of the empire or British objectives for the empire, uh, and those acts got vetoed, they were none too happy about it. In the Constitution, they give the president a qualified veto, right? He can, he or she can veto legislation, but then Congress can override that veto if they really believe in the validity of the legislation that they have just passed. So it's a check on the presidency. But it it kind of goes beyond that, right? They leave things so nebulous that Washington, in some certain circumstances, is not quite sure what he's supposed to do. And there's a classic example in August of 1789, when the Washington administration is negotiating a treaty with Uh, indigenous peoples in the southern states or southern territories. And the Constitution says that when the president is making a treaty, he'll seek advice and consent from the Senate. Nobody knows what that really means, (laughs) but Washington took it literally. And so in August of 1789, he literally goes to the Senate, into the chamber, and wants to hear the senator's opinion. And this makes them very uncomfortable. They almost immediately refer the discussion of the treaty to a committee hmm. because they, they're they thinking back to their, you know, we, we started our conversation, you know, about the usefulness of the past or why the past matters. They're thinking back to their own British and English history. And they're thinking back particularly to the English Civil War of the 1640s mm-hmm. when King Charles I goes into parliament, which is what a king is not supposed to do, to arrest people like Oliver Cromwell and his, and his so-called conspirators. Hmm. In a sense, when Washington enters the Senate, it is like the King entering parliament uninvited. Uh, and it kind of distressing. And so they, Washington leaves and he's, you know, very irritated because he, he came here to get some stuff done. And uh, they were like, you know, you shouldn't be here, man. You should, maybe you just, just go back. Huh. Uh to the executive residence, he was very frustrated. He swore he would never go back and he never did. Uh, and that winter, as my colleague, Lindsay Trevinsky has noted in some of her work, especially her book that's called the cabinet, uh, George Washington and the creation of an American institution that winter Washington has bound a copy of the constitution. And then all the acts of Congress passed in that first session, uh, and he begins to annotate the portions of the Constitution that pertain to the presidency, uh, taking note of the things that he must do uh, or the things that he shall do. Uh, as, and it really tells us that Washington, like the rest of the country, is trying to figure out what the Constitution actually says, what it means, what uh, powers it actually gives to the president, and in his case, how he's supposed to use them uh, and that book I just mentioned is actually sitting about 150 feet away from me in our vault here at Mount Vernon, uh, mm. which is, it's it's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and wa- Washington was not a man who annotated his books, and this is one of the most important times that he does it. So those legacies of thinking about the king as the great father, but also thinking about the king's role in the political system has a real concrete impact on how Americans who draft that constitution... And who are shaping the presidency, uh, it informs the way that they actually try to put those things into practice.
0: Yeah, I'll, and we, I mean, now that you've said all that, I mean, even in the way that we speak, I mean, we speak of the founding fathers, but we speak of Washington as the father of our nation. And I wonder, I, and maybe as a historian, you don't want to speak to this, but I, I wonder how much that continues to affect just the the volatile ways. I, I'm understanding that there's a lot of complex factors, but, mm-hmm. but that idea that we're looking to one individual to be responsible for a nation and for a government right. in, in a system in which intentionally we've divvied up that power, but we're still looking to that one person to answer all of our problems and, and to be that overseer.
1: Yeah, it's a really astute observation. And I think, particularly in our modern era, we have come, in some sense, full circle, in which we expect the president to be, you know, the healer in chief in times of national crisis. We expect the president to conduct a robust foreign policy and represent Americans to the world. We expect the president to come up with solutions to domestic problems that seem to affect all of the states. And yet, as you point out, we live in a federal system in which the states have a very significant say. Uh, you know, thinking about the, the power grids, for example, there is no national power grid, and yet there is instability in our power grids. There's no, no real federal solution to fix those problems because they're all ma- uh, they're all managed at the state level, and yet it's increasingly clear that maybe there should be a federal solution, so that uh, we can distribute power appropriately to different places. When you know there's a windstorm or an ice storm in Texas, or there's fires in California, or or things of that nature, um, may not necessarily work, of course, because again, all of that kind of stuff is regulated at the state level, but. Mm-hmm. You know, people look to one person and not a Congress to do things, uh, and so it's you know it's no surprise, right, that the the president proposes legislation and then lets Congress theoretically debate it and, and act on it. Uh, it's it's theoretically he, he or she yeah yeah he or she is supposed to do something. In the early 19th century, uh, it wasn't necessarily that way. The, the president was more of a figurehead. Uh, you know, certainly the chief diplomat, but the locus of power was in the States. That that was somewhat destroyed by the Civil War in which the national hmm. government takes greater prominence, and increasingly so after the Second World War, when the emergency of that situation bolstered the, fet- the federal government's authority, particularly the president's, and kind of created the more national nation, if I can coin a term right now, <laughs> that we have in our own time.
0: Yeah. There, there is just like this different conception of, of what our nation is. I mean, so you pointed out earlier with the Articles of Confederacy, the states had, they were so different that, that without a centralized government, you know, it would just fall apart. And to some extent, we want that, but we still want the centralized fixer. <laughs> we want the freedom <laughs> and somebody to fix all
1: the problems exactly yeah it is the persistent legacy of the american revolution and the constitutional era is trying to find the right balance of power between the federal government and the state governments and how we as a nation and of citizens fit in there as well yeah well this has been uh
0: super fun thank you dr and busky for for coming on and talking about this how could folks find out more about you and your work?
1: Yeah, if uh, folks want to check out my personal website, you can go to www. dot com. You can find me on Twitter at James jamespmbusky, which is not very creative, but that was the early days of Twitter. Uh, so what are we? What are we going to do? Uh, and also, uh, if you want to learn more about the uh, podcasts that we do here at the Washington Library, uh, please check us out at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. We have an interview program like we're doing today, and we also have a scripted series on the enslaved community here at George Washington's Mount Vernon called Intertwined. So I'd love for you to check that out. Well, that sounds
0: super interesting. I mean, I've listened to a couple of those podcasts, and they were they were great. They're good listens. Uh, thank you again, Dr. Ambusky, for being on the program. And uh, this has been Stopping to Think. I'm your host, Will Dole. Thank you for listening.